um, I saw these yellow high tops in Zara, and so I wore them into the paddock. And I I would say that um, I'd been in the, I'd been in the paddock for maybe seventy or eighty races, and never have I had ever had a reaction to anything that I've ever done than for those yellow shoes. <laughs> it's lights out and away we go. Hello and welcome to the Formula Nerds podcast. Today on the show, we have Matt. As always, how are you, Matt? I am fantastic and I'm just thrilled to be here again. I've missed this. This is my highlight of my week every week. Good. And we have Emma. How are you, Emma? Yeah, I'm fine. Finally drying off from my 10K walk. It is raining in Glasgow. So, yeah. Um, There's a surprise. Feeling good, yeah. And we, we, we have another special guest this week. So uh, last week we had Matt Bishop, but today we've got Lawrence Barreto. How are you, sir? Uh, I'm very good, thanks. Although feeling like I haven't done enough on my Saturday after Emma said she's done a 10K walk. <laughs> uh, in the rain as well. So fair play. That's dedication. It always rains up here, so you just got to get used to it. <laughs> There's a fine line between dedication and insanity. It's along it. <laughs> so Lawrence thank you so much for joining us it's a pleasure to have you with us so for the people that don't know you you're you're a journalist in the F1 community you've been around for a little while now but you currently work for Formula One as a senior writer um, so tell me a bit more about you how did you get into this uh, and especially working for Formula One um, so I'm very lucky that this is I think my 11th year working in Formula One um you can feel free to say you don't look old enough to spend this much time in Formula One. But um, I uh, I started off Bournemouth University, did a journalism degree. Um, I was quite lucky, I'd say, that I always knew that I wanted to do journalism. Um, and Formula One motorsport was was my interest, really. Um, and then my first job was at a magazine called Sport, where no one at the publication wanted to cover Formula One, which I didn't quite understand. And within the first two or three weeks, I was interviewing Lewis Hamilton, Jensen Button. So for me, this was like mental, like a year or so out of uni. And I was getting to interview the guys that I hope I could build up to a point where I could interview them. Um, and it's kind of just escalated from there. I worked at the BBC and covered the Olympics. Um, I worked for Autosport, which is highly respected within Formula One. And that's kind of where I developed lots of sources, uh, got to know people, uh, sort of built up a trust level, I guess, within Formula One. And then the gig at Formula One came up because we created a digital department where after Liberty took over, uh, the commercial rights holder just wanted to make more of the sport. They wanted to get more content out there. Uh, they wanted to, uh, well, they acknowledged that social media existed um, and kind of wanted to make the most of the people in the sport and try and go behind the scenes. And so I kind of came on at a time when we were building up a department and um, I've kind of just tried to make the most of the opportunities that I've had. And so now I'm not just, a, not, I don't just write, I, I'm doing broadcasting as well. So um, the job's evolved and I'm just having a great time, really. So you've just said your, your job's got so many different elements to it. You write, you broadcast, you do interviews with drivers and, and team personnel. But what is what is it about your job that you really enjoy the most? Which part of it and in which parts do you find quite challenging? So I got into journalism generally, or I just do this job because I like talking to people. So that's just at my base level. And um, that I don't feel like when I interview a driver, I'm actually working. I, I'm just being nosy, essentially. 
And so I do this job so that I can interview people, but also talk to people off record, build relationships, um, kind of kind of be part of something bigger. You do feel like a family when you're in Formula One because you just end up seeing these people week in, week out, um, and people become friends. So I think what I really love about my job is just being able to, to do interviews and hopefully um, be able to tell a story, but get out information about the guys that people aspire to be or, or, or love to follow that perhaps you wouldn't have known already. Um, I know that a lot of drivers are on social media, obviously, these days, so you get an insight into their life. But my my job, I think, is to try and get them to explain more things that they ordinarily wouldn't put, put out there themselves. Um, what are the challenging parts of my job? I guess the long hours, I suppose. In the in the triple header to finish last year, so it was Bahrain, Bahrain, Abu Dhabi, I remember at the start of the year thinking that week, those three days between Bahrain and Abu Dhabi, because you stay out, I was thinking, oh, that would be quite nice to get some sunshine and kind of chill out. And then obviously the reality is at that point you're flagging because it was 10 days in. Um, Lewis Hamilton got COVID, of course. So in terms of the job, you're kind of, I remember I worked till like 5am and then it was announced at 8am and you just you're working really long hours so it's challenging I still loved it and I love the buzz and the adrenaline but you can work some pretty long mental hours oh goodness see I'm aspiring to be a a, you know a writer and a journalist as well and um that part of the job it doesn't faze me especially when I've got like a five-year-old and I'm up at all hours in the morning oh there you go you're well experienced (laughs) (laughs) so which driver or or person that you you've interviewed has been maybe the most awkward to interview and have you had any questions that you've maybe asked someone that have backfired on you at all? I would say that Bernie Eccleston was the most awkward person I've ever interviewed because um, I just hadn't prepared enough questions for him or enough topics to hit him with and so I remember I got in and I think I'd burnt through what I wanted to ask in preparation within like five minutes because he'd given like one two three word answers and I remember as it as I was getting to the bottom list of my questions it's very early in my career you just start getting hot and sweaty because you're thinking, oh, like this isn't going how I thought it was going to go. And this guy's like really important and I need to, I need to splash it out. But the irony was I then turned it into a conversation and just had a chat with him and he just relaxed instantly. And okay, the answers were still short, but um, I think I learned quite a good skill that it's interviewing, of course, is asking questions. But for me, it's more having a conversation. And I think sometimes... I, I, especially early in my career, I didn't really see the difference. And so I was going in trying to think I just needed to ask them certain topics and hit certain points when actually the best interviews, depending on what platform you're trying to do them, do it for. Um, or actually just when you have a chat with someone, you get them to relax as if not you're in a pub, but just you're in a situation where both parties are enjoying being there and that you're not, what isn't trying to think you're going to try to catch them out and, and, and vice versa. Um, so I, I think that was probably a good and bad interview a lot of the times, cause I do the TV pen on a, on a Sunday night and, um, you have, I have to talk to 20 drivers in the space of one like 20 minutes. And often you haven't really got time to think about what, well, A, you don't know who's the next one who's coming, but B, you haven't, you've got to then go back through two hours in your head and think what happened to this guy's race. And often say Kevin Magnussen was around the back at 17, 18th, barely on telly. He comes over and I'm like, I know that he finished 17th, but I can't, I, I can't remember <laughs> in my head what happened to him, but you can't, uh, you can't tell him that obviously. And he's, he was accepting of that, but you've got a, the pressure of trying to come up with a question that doesn't make you just look silly or how was your day kind of thing. Um, it, 
it is it is that is one of the more awkward settings. So there's obviously been times where I've got things wrong. Um, I'm at, I've got drivers confused. I've got incidents confused. Um, but I would say in those scenarios, they're generally quite good about it because well, they know what's happening. I'm trying to try to keep across the whole Grand Prix uh, and twenty tell twenty stories, and it's quite so that's quite challenging, I'd say. Um, but who's the who's the hardest? Nico Hulkenberg was one of the harder interviews because he would give you an inch. So mm. if you made a mistake, he'd enjoy that and he'd, <laughs> he'd make you sweat it, sweat it. In a, not in a nasty way, but like an abusive way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And um, he just loved the fact that he had got you on the ropes that he would try and make the most of it for as long as he could. Um, but that, I mean, that ultimately evolved into being a better thing. But I remember coming out of that interview thinking, oh, you really screwed up there. You really screwed up. So, um, but those things happen. You can't beat yourself up about it. You know, you can't do the perfect interview every single time you do one. Like, I do like 100, 100, 150 interviews over a weekend. Like you just can't possibly get it right all the time. God, what, what, what a luxury to be able to speak to all the drivers the moment they get out of the car. I mean, that is that is absolutely awesome. But I can, we do our podcast, our race reviews, as soon as the race finished. And I'm like, God, what actually happened? Uh, <laughs> and you, I, I know exactly what you mean. It's so difficult to recall each event for each person. But um, have you found that since you've become an, you know, since you're now working for F1, that your access has got better into, into, into the paddock? Are you treated differently now? Or is it is it just, it's Lawrence? I think I think it's a mix, if I'm honest. Like, I think that, obviously, as F1, we get a certain amount of access. So we're not just producing content for ourselves. We're producing it for broadcasters who aren't on the ground um, at a Grand Prix. And therefore, we're kind of almost producing a, a service. And therefore, that we need to have a certain level of priority, I guess. Um, and then on a Friday afternoon, for example, after Friday practice, the drivers just don't have time to talk to 20, 30 broadcasters. So we fulfill a role for them. So I guess we do get priority in one sense, but we're trying we're trying to do it in a in a helpful way. But then I'd also been in the sport for a fair few years before coming to Formula One. So I'm lucky in that I I know a lot of the guys anyway. And so it's a mix between if you get on well and you've got a good relationship with people it's it's easier to to get time with people because the, that trust level is being built up so i think it's probably it's probably a real mix i think so it's not even so much your f1 credentials it is the working relationship you've developed with them that have now allowed them to recognize oh hey that's lawrence he's a great chap he always interviews well i like talking to him rather than he's got an f1 badge i better go over there and talk to him so i can pay my dues I'd like to think so. That, like, I'm pretty sure that that's what the case is. Um, of course, that they have an obligation to talk to Formula One. There were days when drivers don't, like we had a period of time where Kimmy just didn't come. He just, he did one or two crews. And if someone was with me at the time, he would just walk off. And then obviously once Kimmy's gone, Kimmy's gone, for example. So it's not, you know, if one don't always get the best access. Um, Sky, for example, they... They um they pay a huge amount of money to broadcast Formula One, so that kind of buys them quite a lot of um, availability in the paddock, and they obviously broadcast in Germany as well as Italy and obviously the UK. So, um, and as well as people using their feed, so they get a lot of good access as well. So, um, it's a real it's a real mix, I think. Um, but I'd like to think, uh, or at least I try to spend a lot of time, um, building relationships, and I want people to come and talk to me and hope that they enjoy talking to me i don't want them to hate it because that's not fun for me and it's definitely not fun for them 
One of the interviews that I really enjoyed watching of yours was your interview with Lewis Hamilton at the back end of last year, just when he won his, his seventh world title. Um, with his success, um, his achievements and the work that he does towards diversity and inclusion, why do you think that he gets so much negative um, feedback from, you know, through social media from Formula One fans? I think that Lewis is a character whereby he's he's so confident um, and personable and is happy to put himself out there that it's inevitable that there are going to be people who who like that and then people who don't like that. And those people who don't like that might feel like he's trying too hard. They might not read him in the way that he comes across um, or they might get confused really about the message that he's trying to put out there. Um, I think that anyone in that position across all sports really you're never going to have a cult following where it's going to be 100% everyone um, are going to back you. But Lewis doesn't, and I don't mean this in a, a negative way, he he doesn't apologise for what he does. And I think that's actually a positive thing because he's using his profile in Formula One to try and to change the world, essentially. And that's not going to be easy because what you're trying to change is going to rub someone up the wrong way, unfortunately. And so I feel... I feel bad for him because for every person who is positive towards him and he gets clearly gets a lot of love, his inbox or on social media must be full of some pretty horrible things. And I don't, you know, it's not just him. I don't think anyone should have to put up with that. Um, and I think that he deals with that incredibly well. I think sometimes his personality might come across as arrogant um, or aloof or he doesn't want to give you the time of day, but I can't imagine how many people are trying to get a piece of Lewis Hamilton and it must be quite exhausting. And I don't think that he is there to, to put on a show just for the sake of it. I think he's there to actually inflict change. And so in doing that, he's going to have a tough, he's had a tough time and he's going to continue to have a tough time. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. That was probably quite long winded, but I'm quite passionate about um, talking about the impact on Lewis because I've, I'm fortunate in that I've known him for quite a long time. I, I first met him when he was in GP2, so I know it was 06, 07. And um, so I've kind of seen how he's grown up and I've seen how much pressure he's been put under growing over the number of years. I've seen the times when he didn't deal very well with that pressure and how he's fought back and grown up. And I just don't think that enough people give him a break. I just think it's, I just... I know I'm lucky enough that I see a slightly different side to him occasionally. And even then he doesn't really open up to me because I'm not his friend, obviously. But I feel like he just gets given too much of a hard time. I think people misunderstand or misinterpret the laser focus he has on his driving and then the betterment of the world and the changes he's trying to inflict or incite in the world. And if somebody meets with negative reviews or a poor interpretation of that, that's their problem. Lewis Hamilton shirks that off and doesn't even give that a moment's thought. And people see that as arrogant and try to twist and contort what he's doing. And I think, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Is, you know, is he nothing he's ever done in my summation has ever been with a PR goal in mind. That is who the man is. Is that your take on that as well? Yeah, I complete, I completely agree with that. I think that, um, I think the amount of work that Lewis puts in behind the scenes just isn't very clear. And so therefore, I think people generally think it comes easy to him. I think they think that he's so super talented 
that he doesn't have to get up really early in the morning, spend hours on WhatsApp with his engineers when he's not, you know, at a race. Um, he doesn't he doesn't go through the data. He doesn't train more than anyone else. I think I think that he people just don't see that partly because he probably doesn't shout about it loads. But he it that it isn't about that for him. He doesn't feel like he needs to prove himself to anyone. He just wants to go out there and win and do the best. I think for him and his family and prove that he has got what it takes. And if people are supportive of that, great. But if people aren't, I don't I don't think it bothers him in in that sense because he's not there to to try and impress it, everyone else. I I kind of compare him to Andy Murray because I think Andy Murray is that kind of person where he doesn't really feel like he needs to make the effort to come across as this great guy, this great character in interviews, because media is just another thing he has to do in his pursuit of trying to be the best tennis player. And so um, to be fair, he probably could do a slightly better job. But my point is that he he is laser focused, like you were saying, that like he, he just wants to win. And I think the greatest are always going to be like that. Um, and I think that if you can kind of give them a little bit of a break from that, they then become immensely likable. And so therefore, um, I think it's probably down more on someone watching him and giving him a break than it is on what things he can do differently, if that makes sense. So we're going to switch gears just a little bit on that because Lord knows, as we can all attest to, we could discuss Lewis Hamilton and dissect his mannerisms and messages all day, and nobody will ever, we'll never get everybody to agree on it. It's just (laughs) almost a lost cause. Uh, With your time that you've spent in F1, you know, with your knowledge, your insights, and your connections with the teams, what are your favorite areas to focus on and research and learn more about and really sink your teeth into? I think the element of Formula One that I really enjoy is the off-track element. So um, it's, I obviously enjoy watching the racing. I watch, uh, enjoy the battles. I enjoy the, the, the championship fight and trying to unpick that. But what I also, what I really like is trying to get the stories behind the scenes of why has someone done that? Why are the our team have the team made this decision? Um, like on the politics side as well in Formula One, it's huge. Trying to get an understanding of a team boss's mindset. Oh, this is the kind of character they are. So this is how they're probably going to approach this discussion at the F1 Commission. It's trying to get to know the people and what they are like as people. So you can try and get an idea of perhaps how they're going to take. So when an issue comes up, like sprint races. If you've done your job and you've got to know all the team bosses pretty well, you should have a pretty good idea of, say, when they're sat in that F1 commission meeting, what you think they're going to vote for, what they're going to discuss, what they're going to push for. Um, Obviously, you're never going to get it right. You're not there, so you're not going to hear the conversations, but you can kind of get a good feel for it so that when you report on it and you try and tell the story about it, and then obviously you talk to them on the record and afterwards, you you're able to ask the right questions and tell the story in a way that hopefully um gives fans a good insight into you know why why we've arrived at this point so i think for me it's it's trying to dig out those stories it might be you have to talk to someone for 20 minutes half an hour you've just bumped into them in the paddock and for the first 25 minutes you get nothing from it and then suddenly they just set slip and they've you know something they've done or something the team has achieved and you're like oh that's really interesting what's happened there and then you find out that piece of information, you might go and ask someone else about it. And they go, oh, okay, well, this is that, and that's happened, and this has happened. And a lot of the stories that come out of Formula One aren't things that teams um, offer up. They're things that they do that they probably think aren't that interesting or aren't really cool. Um, and so they don't then talk about it unless you just happen to ask them about it. 
So it's it's kind of having conversations that you don't expect anything to come out of them, but um, you hope that you can unearth like a gem. And I suppose that's what the buzz and like the adrenaline I, I kind of get from the job is, is trying to unearth those stories, I guess. That's why I love being there. That's why I love being on site. It's because I feel so, like I can make a difference. It's almost you're taking a human story, regardless of the backdrop of Formula One and the racing and all of that, and you're building your profile and bringing a human element to it. And that's what the focus should be on within the encompassing structure of F1. You know, at the end of the day, they're still humans. And the same as you talked about earlier, human relations drive everything forward that you do. Exactly. And so then and then it that transfers to the tracks. So if you like Carlos Sainz, for example, great personality off track as he is on the track. But if you get to know what the kind of person he is, you can you can see what style of um driver he's going to be on track. So it can kind of help you make um it can help you analyze what he's doing. Um you know that he's an aggressive driver, that he he never gives up. And I know never drivers never do give up, but what I mean is that like when he was chasing down Pierre Gasly in Monza, for example, there were drivers on that grid who perhaps I would know would probably accept it wasn't going to happen. But I knew that he, Carlos would rather crash, for example, that, and lose second and try and win. Um, so then it, that just helps because I know what he's like. That just helps me tell the story. It helps me interview him afterwards, for example. It's those kind of things. It's knitting together that it's not just about what happens on Sunday afternoon. It's it's about trying to put it all together. And I haven't, I, you know, haven't got the perfect solution yet, but it's just trying to get better at it and trying to just trying to, yeah, yeah, trying to do a better job, I guess, each time I, I do it. So moving, I think 2020 was just an incredible year for so many reasons for F1. I mean, uh, the, the challenges that uh, F1 was up against even having a season, um, putting on a, spe- you know, a, a really good season as well so some really great races and a great show um, obviously it was it was all due to covid and, and we hoped we'd be in a better position than we are you know by this point but we're not so how stable is the calendar looking this year how much do you think it, it's still going to be shaken up you know I, I appreciate you can't predict the future but um how's it looking if only i could uh, <laughs> um how is it shaping up i think that we are definitely in a better place this year to try and put a calendar um, out that we started with. And I mean that in the sense that because we've got so much experience of how to run a COVID Grand Prix now, we've got 17 examples of that. Um, It's not so, it's not so scary now to do that. And and so we can put much more plans in place to get events ready to to do it. Um, So much work goes into hosting a Grand Prix, you know, even if it's not a street track, even just a circuit, you have to go there weeks and weeks before to put cables down. It's all these kind of little things that if you can't get all those logistical elements right, a Grand Prix can't happen. And it's just because now we've done a whole season in COVID, we know how to get around all the problems that we've had. That's why I think there's an increasing chance that this year it's going to it's gonna be closer. We're going to end the year closer to what we hoped to at the start. I think that, you know, from you know, Monaco, some people might say, well, it's a street circuit. How can we go there? But, you know, next week they're going to start building it so they they must have a confidence that within the protocols we put in place as formula one and what the state can do in monaco 
that they must be an understanding that we can pull things together. Of course, we don't know what's going to happen. We could get another wave of COVID. And in two or three months time, that could not just put races where street circuits are involved um, at risk, but just not, you know, races where normal um, circuits are, traditional circuits are. So I, I don't know what's going to happen. But at the moment, the way I'm looking at it, I'm looking at it as and we're going to do all 23 races as they are. Um, and I wasn't thinking that last year. So I suppose the best that I could say is that it's we're in a, in a better position this year. And mm. um, there's, there's natural difficult points in the year. Brazil, obviously, it's a very difficult situation over there. But then we're not going there till November. And a lot of us might be vaccinated by then. So it's it's it is really difficult. But I've got I've just got a better feeling about this year for mm. reasons I can't really explain. In 2020, we we saw there was no fans at the circuits, um, which which was quite a strange thing to see, um, especially watching through the television. Um, it looks as if this year many circuits won't have fans there either. Um, so with how is the, the, the whole, all the, the new COVID regulations and precautions that have been taken, what impact has that sort of had um, on your job? And as, as having not having fans at the track, what sort of impact has that had on, on say, the drivers and the teams as well? I think, so when we went to Austria, Austria last year, um, I don't think I fully appreciated how different it would be without fans, especially at that event, because you, you've got such passionate fans and it's normally, you know, it's normally full of uh, Max Verstappen fans. I don't think I appreciated what a difference they make. And I obviously um, it's great to have fans at any sporting event, but when it's dead quiet, you really do appreciate what a difference they make to the whole weekend. And that's not just the noise that they make, but it's the buzz and the excitement that it gives you as a person working at that event, that you're there to cover something special. And that first race in Austria, we were obviously just pleased because we had Formula One going, but it just felt like a test session. And um, from that point of view, I think it, it, it served as a reminder to everyone working in Formula One who can sometimes just get used to this amazing job that we have because we obviously do it week in week out um how important fans and everyone plays a part in putting on this event and i think it did have an impact on the drivers in that i think they get excited about it i think they get excited about the fact that tons of people have come to watch them do their job and i think that on on a day on the grid i think they still got excited and there was still that buzz and that adrenaline and that nervousness but it wasn't that same. It didn't hit like a fever pitch. And I think there was there was a disappointment. So I don't think they're being disingenuous when they say that they can't wait for the fans to come back and they, the fans make a difference because I, I genuinely think they do. I think, And I think it, it lifts not just them, but it lifts everyone there. So it's going to be another difficult year on that score. Um, but even when we had some events last year, like Magello, when they at least got a few fans there, it did make a huge, it made a huge difference. Mm. Um just having fans, um, you know, there at the gates, obviously more for the, for the drivers, it's, it's better because they're there for them, obviously. But it, it just felt like you were there to report on something bigger, essentially. Portugal was another kind of, Portugal just felt like another good, another, a normal race because there were so many fans kind of lining the track. On a practical um, point, the drivers are far more relaxed in the paddock now because, there are fewer guests. Well, there were no guests essentially. Mm. And so the freedom for them is huge because they can now walk out of their hospitality and just wander around, not like aimlessly, but I mean, they can just wander around, check on their phone, bump into someone, have a chat. 
and I'm not saying they they go to avoid guests, but when there's just so many people around, it's quite full on, and it's probably not very useful for them to want to try and get from their hospitality unit to their garage and waste half an hour talking to tons of people along the way. So I think from a very practical point, they had more time with their engineers, more time to discuss the race weekend as a whole. But then on the other point, they were obviously missing out on all of the other very important aspects of their job, which is meeting sponsors, which is hugely important. It's meeting guests, it's meeting fans. And they accept that, but obviously they will take more time with their engineers. They'll take more time with the mechanics because hopefully it will make them a better driver. It will make them a faster driver. Mm. I, I, I hadn't actually thought about it before, but I, I'm always at Silverstone. It's like it's, it's, it's the highlight of my entire year. But can you imagine having been there? Well, I'm sure you can actually, but when Lewis won the Grand Prix on three wheels, I mean, can you imagine the roar in the crowds? Ah, oh, dear. So we, we, we spoke just before the show that... Um, we, we both went to the, the McLaren car press launch. They've revealed their new car. So at the point of recording, which is the 20th of February, we have only seen two cars. Um, but with all the car launches coming, well, they're in full swing at the moment. You're the man who knows what's going on behind the scenes. Who, who should we be looking at this year in terms of cars that are going to really lift from where they previously have been? I'm not sure I am the man. <laughs> I, I, I suppose the, the difficulty... Um, with COVID is that because we're not going to the car launches, um, because just, so normally traditionally over the winter, I'll have spent time alongside the car launches, going to team factories, going to other events, meeting people. And it's not just missing out on the interviews. It goes back to something I said earlier, just just that chat over coffee while you're waiting for an event to start. We're missing out on all these things. Um, we're missing out on, say, hearing that, um, you know, if a team wanted to do a test, for example, at Silverstone, like Williams did, if they didn't tweet about it, uh, they could have done that shakedown last week and no one would have known because people aren't out and about. And I think from that point of view, this year going into this season, there's a lot more unknowns because teams are in a position where they they can hide stuff. And obviously they intentionally want to hide some stuff, but to a point where there is some stuff they wouldn't mind talking about. But no one's in a position to get that information out of them because of COVID. So I think it is um, this guy, I sound like I'm sitting on the fence here with your question, but it's kind of, it's very difficult to uh, know what, who is going to be good and who isn't going to be good based on the utterance that I've heard this winter. What I would say is I'm super excited about Aston Martin just because it's a new brand coming to Formula One. They are clearly, from what I've heard, throwing everything at, not just their launch, but the project as a whole. And they they clearly want to make a proper splash about it. I say they, Lawrence Stroll wants to win. He wants to be a successful businessman. So I can't see why he wouldn't throw all of the resources behind making Aston Martin a proper thing. So I'm pretty excited to see what they deliver, not only in their launch, but on track this year. Um, and that's a lineup that I'm pretty excited about because I rate Sebastian Vettel. Um, and so I'm interested to see whether this this chance, uh, Matt's delighted by that. <laughs> <laughs> um, You've made a friend today. I, <laughs> well, I just think he's another one. He's just got a hard time and he's had one bad year. And I think people are just writing him off. And I'm like, no, he's one of the best drivers ever. Like, you'll see. Hope, well, hopefully we'll see. Um, he beat him reborn at Aston Martin. So that's going to be a great story. There's so many good driver lineups this year because we've had so much change. Um, and I'm also really looking forward to how teams deal with launch season when they can't do a proper event. Um, there's a couple of things that I know about of car launches 
uh, one team in particular that are doing something brilliant this year um, and I've never seen anything like it. So I think that COVID has kind of forced um, teams into doing something um, more creative um, and hopefully it will go down pretty well. But no, before you ask, I can't say. But, <laughs> um, but there's, there's just some very cool things coming up, I'd say. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back on the other side with more questions, more juicy, juicy information from Lawrence. So don't go anywhere. Welcome back. Uh, so, Matt, um, you, I think you, you wanted to talk about super teams, didn't you? <laughs> Lawrence, in your previous answer, you're talking about, you know, the teams are doing things differently, which, you know, do you feel there is a shift in the way the teams are going about structuring their drivers lineups with these creations of, you know, as some people are calling them super teams by having like Carlos Sainz with Charles Leclerc, Daniel Ricciardo with Lando Norris and, you know, stacking the odds to have a better aggregate point scoring potential with a team rather than having a clear cut number one and a rear gunner number two driver. Do you feel that's sort of a, a trend that we could see develop or change going forward with the teams? I think that we'll see an increase in number of teams doing that, but I think there'll always be some teams who are forced even with a cost cap to take a driver, perhaps that brings back in that if you had three of the best drivers and the third one has the most money or a significant amount of money they'll get chosen over the second one i think we'll still always have that i think that you'll always see a team perhaps like mercedes or or the leading team operate on a basis of having a, a, a real star driver and then uh, you know a driver that you know Valtteri Bottas is is a very very good grand prix driver but he's obviously not on lewis hamilton's level and i think they're pretty happy with that harmony because you're always going to get those big characters you're going to get your maxes and your lewises and I don't always think that, say, putting Lewis and Max together, for example, is is going to be a fruitful way of doing it, I don't think, because you're going to get the fireworks unless you want the fireworks and you can deal with the fireworks. So it's kind of, I think we'll see more lineups like Ferrari taking, um, taking a risk. I don't know if it's a risk. Take, taking that approach of younger drivers. McLaren have kind of done it with Daniel and Lando, though I couldn't actually believe Lando was 10 years younger than Daniel, which is astonishing, really. Mm. Um but I think we probably will see a move towards, yeah, trying to get two cars scoring, for example. And now I have to do the uh, the question I'm dying to know. Who do you feel has the strongest lineup going into the 2021 season? Oh, that's a good question. Um, who do I have the strongest lineup? See, I don't want to sound silly by not saying Lewis and Foutry, but I think that on balance, the strongest lineup is probably Ferrari because mm. because Charles is the star of the future and I think that he showed last year that he can if you give him a car he can win championships I think I think the last year was actually better than the year before even though obviously his results weren't so good and I just really rate Carlos I think he I think he's any driver who can leave the Red Bull Academy um and make a, a career out of um, out for himself um, and then become so highly rated that so many teams want you um, I think it's going places so I think Carlos and, and Charles is the is the best lineup on the grid um, yeah it's interesting you say that uh, quite a few people that we've spoken to have said the same thing uh, which is making Matt extremely happy uh, <laughs> but 
it's not just 2021 that's got well a change in, in driver lineups. There's also going to be a massive shakeup, we believe, in 2022, where uh, both Mercedes drivers' contracts are expiring. There's there's a lot of movement. So, uh, do you want to make any bold predictions for the 2022 season? So I think that 2022, I think what we're going to see is a team like Red Bull or potentially Ferrari making a big step because I think that even though we've got the cost cap and everyone will be operating on the same level, they're just, they've just got that head start. And I feel like Mercedes have got more to lose and Ferrari and Red Bull have got more to gain. So I think that we could potentially see a, a, a position where we've got three teams fighting at the front properly um, for for the championship. But I don't honestly think it's going to be until 24, 25, 26 that we see a really competitive championship because we need to let these new rules mature. Um, and I think that it's going to take a number of years for that cost cap to actually show a difference on track. Um, but what I like about new rules when you get them is of course it gives Mercedes a chance to, to step ahead even further, but it then also gives another team a real chance to make a massive step up. And it's down to them at the end of the day. And, you know, if that doesn't happen, it's because they haven't all done good enough jobs. Um, it's not, it might not necessarily be because of the rules. So it's kind of, we've got to rely on the likes of an Aston Martin and McLaren continuing their rise at the moment. We've got to rely on the fact that they're going to start making steps. We've got to rely on the fact that, perhaps Mercedes won't do as good a job this time around. Um, and we've got a Red Bull needs to really start delivering as do Ferrari. Like we've, how many years now have we been talking about both those teams that, you know, often on moments they've been strong, but too, all too often they're, they're letting themselves down and they're letting the fans down. So I've, I'm hoping that, that the new rules provides them with an opportunity to to kind of take a greater fight to Mercedes. With the there's very small regulation changes coming into force this year, very small aerodynamic changes, but obviously 2022 is when the essentially the new era will start. Do you have um any thoughts on any any drivers or any teams that might surprise us in the next couple of years? I think that you need to we need to keep an eye on teams like Aston Martin because Lawrence Stroll has a decision to make in terms of how much resource he wants to put into his team and if he wants to put the amount of money that is required, even with a cost cap, in to win. And that might at some point mean that Lance Stroll isn't in the second car. So he's got a load of decisions to make over the next couple of years. It might be, don't get me wrong, Lance Stroll evolves into a driver that is worthy of the second seat. But I think that dad has got some big decisions essentially to make. I think I'm really excited to see what Alpine can do. I think um, that team as Renault, as Lotus, they've always shown that they've got the ability to compete, but they just make what I feel is the same sort of mistakes. And so it, it will be interesting now under the same, a new brand, whether that kind of gives them the opportunity to kick on because those two brands really should be fighting with a, a Ferrari, Red Bull and Mercedes. So we're kind of relying on them to deliver and I'm super happy that McLaren got the funds in place last year to to put them um, in a position where they're not going to, they won't close their doors. I'm not saying that they got that close, but it was looking pretty ropey at some point. So I'm glad that they've got a real solid foundation now that they can, they build on. And I think if you ask any person in the paddock, what team boss that they highly rate coming through, it's Andreas Seidel. I think he is some sort of superhuman man manager. 
Um, and he is able to not only set a direction of growing a company and taking them to a front, but just motivating people. And I think often that is really underestimated. And I, I know a lot of teams would have loved for him to have come to, to work for them. He obviously chose McLaren. Um, I think they can be back to, to being world champions, you know, in the, in the near future um, with him at the helm if, if they kind of build on the same trajectory. So there's tons to look forward to in Formula One. Um, and I, I just think that there will there will come a time when Mercedes won't dominate. They, of course, they will do. I'm going to touch on Andreas Seidel very, very quickly. You know, we haven't really discussed amongst us who we think the key figures in the F1 paddock are for running the teams on a daily operation. And uh, I actually was reading a book about a year ago about the key tenets of leadership, and it mentioned the three M's: you have to be a master politician, a motivator, and a manager. And you know, hearing you say Andreas Seidel, I don't know if you saw M and I were both like, yeah, 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 because he is one of the people that I feel is extremely underrated for people who aren't in the paddock interacting or looking at the bigger picture behind the scenes. And I, I just want to hear if you can expound a little bit more on what you think makes Andreas Seidel underappreciated for his overwhelming potential for success with the way he is constructed as a human being, his intellect and his mannerisms. I suppose the thing that struck me the most is that Andreas doesn't feel the need to shout about a lot of things. He doesn't feel like he needs to be telling everyone that McLaren are doing a good job. He doesn't feel the need to be telling everyone he's doing a good job. He kind of just cracks on and gets on with doing what he needs to do to, or what he thinks he needs to do to make the team successful. He also knows his limits and what he is capable of doing. And so therefore he is more than happy to put people in place that are better than him in a certain area. And that's what he's done with the structure at McLaren. He's put key people and given them huge responsibility um, and the buck stops with them um, in the hope that they can do the best that they can do. And he then pulls it together. He kind of, he's the umbrella, if you like. um, And is the, is the motivation, but also relying on other people doing a good job because he accepts that he isn't the king. Like he, he isn't going to come in and change the team by himself, he realizes, but he is going to be able to put a scenario in place whereby he can get the company up and running. And I think he strikes me as someone who, who really understands that and doesn't just say it, actually does it, I suppose. And you talk to people at McLaren, and particularly during the Honda years, People were sad, like people were unhappy um, all the way through the company. Um, you'd see them and they just looked demoralized. And no one likes to see that with anyone, really. But but they obviously just loved the sport so much. That they were obviously still there trying to, to make something out of nothing. And they've obviously got this new guy who's come in and he's breathes fresh air into, into McLaren and to, to the technology center. And he's he's got everyone excited again. He's got everyone loving their jobs again. He's given everyone the support and the confidence that they are good, you know. And they, that was just a bad year and a bad bad sorry bad series of years and a bad um, relationship. Um, and that if they get given the right resource and the time, uh, and there's no pressure, like you make a mistake, we're not going to fire you. That kind of vibe. I think it's starting to, it's starting to breed success and you can't do that, you know, over one, one year, two years, three years, even though McLaren had such a great year last year, Andres is basically saying, look, we still got plenty to do. We've got to build a wind tunnel. We've got to do this. We've got to do that. I've got this checklist, this, this song, you know, we're going to get there. Of course we're going to do, but we're not putting any, we're not setting any silly mark goals. 
we're not, you know, going to push ourselves too hard. We're going to pile the pressure on our employees. We're just going to go out and do it. And I think that that shockingly is underrated in Formula One. Um, and then the, I think the final thing is people like him. And I think that that is, that's underestimated as well. You've got to, you've got to be likable um, because you get people motivated. You get people who want to work for you. And I think when you've got happy people and, and you've got a boss that you want to work with, you get success. And we're seeing, we're just seeing that at McLaren. Well, so you get, you get to travel the world going to every single race that, I mean, the stuff of dreams, right? Um, not many yeah, people get to do I don't mean to, to make that. you feel bad. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but because we don't, what, what you can tell us, what are the real, what are the best tracks and best events on, on the calendar? And also, um, if you could pick one that isn't on the calendar, to put onto the calendar, what would it be? So the one that I would love to put on the calendar is Kailami, because I feel as a sport, not only should we be in Africa, but I just think that circuit is awesome. I think it would be great. I think the event itself would be brilliant. And I think that feeds into your other question that it's not just about being a great track and producing a Grand Prix. It's about being a great event. And so their location is hugely important um the access to that event so you can get the fact you know get fans in not just maybe from that country but it's an accessible destination for for others as well so you kind of get the meeting of fans i think it's hugely important um and you've got to get fans wanting to go i think if you can get that kind of holy grail all of those factors um i think that's what formula one and we should be you know aspiring to do and that's why i think when liberty talk about a destination city i think i think that's what they mean and so that the the race that does that for me is Singapore. I think that the circuit itself, okay, might not always deliver the greatest Grand Prix in terms of overtaking, but we've had some cracking races there. Um, at night, it looks great, and I think that's I think that's important because you want to get people wanting to watch a race. Having been to the Grand Prix quite a few times now and spoken i've had friends and family have come out as well that's the race they've enjoyed the most because you watch a grand prix you go to a concert you go into a great city like it's a brilliant holiday it's a brilliant weekend you've had a great time you're going to go and tell your mates that formula one's brilliant it looks cool uh singapore's a great city like it's for me that's just exactly what every event should aspire to be um so from yeah so singapore is bang up there and then other races like that. Canada, Montreal is amazing. Australia is great. And okay, Canada's a great Grand Prix track as well. And Australia, maybe not so much. But I think all three share enough um, characteristics that make them great events. Um, those were the three that I'd happily recommend to, to anyone going. And I, I think you could take a real mix of people. So if you took a group of friends or your family, I think you could take them to those events and they'd genuinely be something for everyone. Even if someone hates Formula One, they're going to love Melbourne. They're going to love their kind of atmosphere and the fans there, like everyone's going to talk to you. The fans are brilliant. Like um, you're just going to, I think you'll just get a, a happy group of people. So, and I think that every event should aspire to be that. Rich Energy CEO William Story has been dropping mysterious hints of a return to F1 on Twitter with a deadline of last week for his announcement. Do you truly feel he is returning to the F1 grid? And if so, where? He could prove me wrong and he could turn up on the F1 grid. Um, but my instinct is that he won't be on the grid. It kind of amused me that he said he was going to be in Bahrain. But COVID protocols probably will limit his ability to be there because he wouldn't be a, a required member of personnel for a team. Um, 
but who, like who knows he's he's been he's been making a lot of noise recently um he made an announcement that wasn't an announcement he just said i'm going to announce something and then talked and said i'm going to do something well then okay um look my experience of him and uh is with Hass and my feelings there is that that didn't go very well and it wasn't Hass's fault, should we say. So I I would be surprised if we see him back um, in Formula One, particularly as in the build-up to that deal, he obviously spoke to other teams. And so then there is feedback or there is an opinion of how he dealt with them as well. Um, I'm, not, I'm just not sure that we're going to see him back, but he seems to be providing some entertainment, doesn't he, at the very least? It's unbelievable. It really is. And I, I, I almost hate spending my time talking about it, but at the same time, it's just... I, I just I can't work the man out. I just I just can't do it, and it fascinates me to the point where we he's since we've been recording, he's actually tweeted us. He's replied to a tweet that we put out yesterday. Ah, what um, did he say? So we put out. Uh, I'll show you on camera. We we we, we shared uh, one of the concept liveries for um, Alfa Romeo, and we said, "Well, this looks nice." And he's replied, and he said, "Sadly, I can't currently comment on the identity of the team concerned, but I can guarantee that the livery will be exceptional." <laughs> Moving William's on. story rejects <laughs> our reality and substitute his substitutes his own. I just uh, madman. Uh, well, if it is if it is Alfa Romeo that he's suggesting that he's going to be with, then we don't have long to find out, do we? No, we don't. Mm-mm. We don't. We can conclude this a bit like Lewis Hamilton's contract. <laughs> Finally, <Yeah>. clear it up. <laughs> uh, one of the big storylines in this off season right now is Honda's quote unquote departure. Yeah. from Red Bull and Red Bull taking over with the I think they call it the Red Bull Powertrain Limited something along those lines. Uh, the last time Honda quote unquote left the grid, uh, the very next year Ross Braun won a world championship. <laughs> Do you feel that Red Bull could pull off the same magic management moves alliteration and replicate that? I mean, I'm sure that if they are superstitious or they believe in things like that, they are secretly hoping that the same thing happens to them. Um, look, the Honda power unit is decent now. Like it, it's right up there and um, they've got such a great group of people working on it, properly motivated um, dedication to the job in a way that I've never really seen before. And that's partly why I'm quite disappointed that they're leaving formula one. Can they do a brawn? I think that the way the regulations are written for next year, um, I know never say never, but I think it's unlikely we'll see something as dramatic as that. But I do think that they could luck into the fact that they've got a a great engine in the back of that car. And if, you know, Adrian and his technical team get it right at last with the the aero elements and the chassis, there's no reason why they couldn't then become proper contenders. Um, I think it's worked out really well for them that they've been able to be put in a position where Honda are basically doing the development for next year for them, even though they're leaving at the end of this year. I think they're quite fortunate in that. And they're obviously fortunate that the engine regs are freezing as well. So I don't think it will be Braun-esque, but I think that they have the potential um, to, to impress over the next few years. All I'll say is I know Honda will do their job based on what's happened in the last couple of years. It's kind of now down to Red Bull to package that car well and deliver on the chassis and aero side. Like we know they can do, we just don't know if they can do it consistently. I have one final question for you and I'm slightly envious of this, actually. I've seen various pictures of your shoes. (laughs) 
And I am, as a, as a massive shoe fan, I collect shoes. My husband insists on a one-in, one-out policy with, with my shoes. How many have you got? Um, I have got about 50 pairs of shoes. Oh, that makes me feel better now. So. <laughs> <laughs> but I, the thing is, some of them I, mm. I haven't worn in years, but I keep them just purely because I love the look of them and I just love them. Yeah. But... I, I saw a picture of these beautiful purple snakeskin boots that you have. I, oh, yeah. I absolutely love those. But where did this whole idea of these fantastic and wonderful shoes come from? Um, it all started... So it, I wear bright clothing, generally speaking, anyway. I, like, I'm not walking around like a lemon or banana, but, like, I like <laughs> bright colours. Um, and so I just happened to see these yellow high tops. I, I generally like high tops. That's my favorite type of shoe. Um, I saw these yellow high tops in Zara. And so I wore them into the paddock. And I, I would say that um, I'd been in the, I'd been in the paddock for maybe 70 or 80 races. And never have I had ever had a reaction to anything that I've ever done than for those yellow shoes. <laughs> and it wasn't just um, uh friends or colleagues or whatever that were talking about it drivers were like would talk about it uh either positively or negatively but in a in a nice way and i thought well this is quite fun isn't it so then it became a thing that i bought another pair when they got old um and then friends were like oh have you seen this pair so that's why i got the shoe backer ones because my friend rosa at mercedes um she saw these and she was like these are cool, aren't they? So I was like, yes, bye. You know, and so all that's happened is I've just built up a collection now um, where I've kind of got carried away. So I've got 42 pairs now. So as I say, that makes me feel much better. You've got 50. And I'm actually thinking about trying to find some sort of bookshelf. Initially, don't laugh, but when I bought this bookshelf, the intention was to put my shoes on it. Yeah. Um, I sorry, I realised this is a podcast, so this is not going to be of any use to anyone listening. But behind <laughs> me on this Zoom call is a bookshelf, and I bought it to put all my shoes on. So uh, the one sh- one one shelf has still got the monster. Oh. So um, there they are. So yeah, so there's some yellow uh, pumas, and so that was the intention because I'm just really proud of them. But the reason why I wear them now is just I like them. They're quite a cool thing. They've become a thing, and now they're just a talking point. And uh, in especially in the COVID times when people were just a bit sad, I'm not saying my shoes made their day, but it was just a, like a funny thing to talk about that kind of broke a slightly, might have broke a slightly difficult run of, you know, run of days. So, um, yes, I've got some really good ones this year. I've got six new ones to, to debut this year. So, um, yeah, let's see. Let's see right. how it goes. Emma, we need to get a feature on the website about this. I, I'm quite excited <laughs> to see it. And, uh, it it's just, I'm it's, actually... Well, so the other thing was that I, I'm, I've started designing my own shoes. Uh, this is quite fortuitous because I also happen, and I didn't know you were going to ask me about this, but I've just started sketching out stencils oh, wow. and like wow. I'm going to do my own design. Again, this doesn't lend itself to podcasting, but um, I'm going to try and design my own shoe because Lando obviously does a lot of his own designs. Um, and he, I was, he was telling me about like sprays that he's used to protect the shoes or whatever. So I thought, well, I'm, I've bought myself a white pair of high tops. I'm going to pay, I'm going to give it a go and design my own ones and see how it goes. But the, the contraption I want to do is Danny Kibiat said, why don't I get pouches that I can put on the side of my high tops and fill them with the dry ice that they use to kill, to cool the cars on the grid. Because then when I'm walking, it's like I've got this smoking steam effect. 
And I was like, well, that's a phenomenal idea. Like, isn't it? It would be freaking, that would be brilliant. It'll look I mean, like arrow vortexes coming off the side yeah. of your shoes. That's insane. Exactly. Oh, I love that. How good. But you see, the very fact that he, this is what we started an interview with. He just wanted to talk about that for like a little bit and then relaxed into the interview. So I was like, well, this is brilliant. Forget so, Lewis uh, Hamilton in his pink suit. Forget that. That's old news now. <laughs> 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 is there a possibility of an element of pyrotechnics? Like, I think we could take this somewhere. <laughs> so the shoes that I had in Bahrain had, you know, kids have those shoes with the lights and the, the light ups on the mm-hmm. pressure. So I had those. I'm wondering whether I can evolve that shoe idea into something. Yeah. Where you flash the lights off the shoe. Like, I don't know. I'm sure there's more that can be done. I can't wait to see you know, all these long, all these long flights that I've got. Like, what else am I going to do? I may as well start thinking about crazy <laughs> ideas that I could do in my shoes. Those shoes from Bahrain actually came up in our pre-meeting before this podcast because I was saying like we have to mention the Bahrain shoes because I remember just being so envious as a fully grown adult man. Like, he's got light ups. This is. <laughs> I never had them as a kid, so I feel like I, oh, uh, I, I could just live out my childhood. Yeah, so I was I was delighted. And the cool thing about those is you could then set them. So if I was interviewing someone at Ferrari, I'd set them to the red lights. Or oh, if this... I was interviewing oh, someone at McLaren, yes. I'd set them to the orange lights. Right, look at that. So there's no bias here, guys. Like... You know, you're setting a you are setting a trend for 2021 right now because I, I want Mercedes colored shoes right now. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean. In keeping with tradition, you know, I am wearing Ferrari colored shoes, but they're just slippers, Whoa. so I don't know if that really counts. <laughs> no, they count. They count. Red shoes. Always the way. Uh, I am going to take something to one of my favorite realms. Uh, as the resident nerd big boy, I guess we will say it, on your Instagram, you list yourself as a burger connoisseur. <laughs> I would like to ask you. Which track has the best burger in their concessions, and where are your top two right now burgers? Okay, so um, the burgers that I'm recording, um, I don't know if you've wanted to open this can of worms. Oh, no, we Um, do. We do. (laughs) I've eaten 160 different burgers across the world, not including like a McDonald's type of burger. Um, And it kind of just started when I went out for dinner once in Manchester about five or six years ago. And I was just analysing the burger. Uh, I love food, generally. I'm not just weird. And I was like, oh, this is quite cool. And I like this burger better because of this. And my mate said, well, why don't you just write about it? So this is how it started. And because of my job, I'm very lucky that I get to travel the world. I thought, well, um, why not try and create a book about the best burgers that I find when travelling around the world? Um, So the best burger is in Montreal. It's at a place called Foie Gras um, in Little Burgundy, uh, west of the city. And it was a beef burger um, sat in a pool of gravy. So think like a breakfast-style bowl filled up to the level that you'd put milk with cereal. You'd fill that with gravy. And then they, the burger comes sat in the pool of gravy. Now you're thinking, well, hang on a minute. The bun's going to go soggy. No, because they've toasted the bun on all sides to the point where it doesn't then absorb the gravy. Well, it, it takes a little bit on, but it doesn't go like super soggy. And this burger is so good that it doesn't spend much time in the gravy anyway, because you bite into it, then you dip it back into the gravy, and then you have another bite. It was it was a taste sensation. It was phenomenal. My, so, my, yeah. my mouth's watering. I'm just going <laughs> to just tell you that now. Every, every <laughs> single one of us started, like, working our lips and licking them during that. It's just like, oh. oh. Uh, no, I know. It's um, I... 
it's just another one of my passions, I guess. It's just, it's, it's food generally, but just um, burgers. And, and it's another talking point, really. Like, so people now, when they go out for dinner with me, they go, right, so let's tell me where the best burger place is. So there's pressure, but um, it's kind of, it, it's, you know, it's something fun to do when you're away. Well, so, I, th- yeah, I think you're the trusted things. man. If you were in my friendship group, I would be like, right, <laughs> Lawrence, <laughs> Lawrence is the man deciding where we're eating burgers tonight. No one else has got any say. I'm very happy to, um, like, spend a lot of time. I'm the kind of person, when you go to a country, I spend a ton of time researching the best places to eat and then come up with a list beforehand and probably have made some bookings beforehand. Like, for example, this burger that I have just spoken about, I'm not worried about mentioning it because I've already got a booking in for this year um so that i can go back again so because that was the problem see i told everyone about it in the paddock when i'd gone on the thursday night i couldn't get in for the rest of the weekend oh, no. it was really <laughs> so, uh, so yeah so i've learned my lesson from that one always book ahead before you publicly talk about it so. tell them the second best burger in the city and leave <laughs> well, well that yeah <laughs> yeah exactly exactly that yeah uh Oh dear. So yeah, no, but I'm, I've been lucky. Yeah, I've eaten a, lo- I've eaten a load of burgers uh, that are good across the world. I've eaten one burger. I'm not going to name where it was, but they served it to me last year at a race, and I bit into it. And I thought, like, well, I don't know what the, you know. There's something papery in it. And what they had done, the burger was so bad. It was a frozen burger, and they'd left the um, the paper, the bit of paper that the greaseproof paper in that they used the to, to separate the patties on the patties. Oh my god! It was, it was. I've never seen anything like it before. I just, I was just so appalled by it. Yeah. So anyway, so I do have bad, I just, it's not always great burgers. There are some bad burgers. <laughs> well, that's how you find so, out which yeah. are the good, isn't it? No, thank, thank you for sharing. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Two ends of the spectrum. I got my burger joint. I'm set now. This has been great. I've loved it. I'm happy to keep talking, but that's <laughs> do, do you know what? I, I often think, let's just let's just have a dinner party. Uh, <laughs> Lawrence gets to pick where we go. Yeah, Lawrence. Well, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I'll pick the place where we get to eat. And yeah, no, it sounds uh, no, it's been good. It's been really good. Thanks, guys. Thank you I so yes. Thank you so much for your time, Lawrence, and uh, coming on the show and, and sharing your knowledge on everything from where to go, where to eat, who's going to be doing what. I mean, we've had a real all round. We've even spoken about Mr a story so um we we've been round, we've been around there today haven't we uh yeah we've gone around the houses and uh hopefully i haven't bored too, pe- too many people with the shoes and burgers chat but um i thought we covered f1 pretty heavily uh, or comprehensively earlier in the show but um i've really enjoyed it guys thank you very much for having me we will uh we we will drop you an email later on in the year and, and get back in touch and see see how you're getting on if you have time um <laughs> but uh, I'd, love no. to I'd love to come back amazing all right thanks thanks again and we will catch up with you later in the year Bye.